Well, good morning. First of all, as we get started, I want to bring you greetings from those from our body who have gone over to the Holy Land. We've been getting some fun pictures from them. We've got some pictures of them at the headwaters of the Jordan, uh, at Nazareth, looking out at Megiddo across the valley. There's some cool things that they're getting to see, and I can't wait to hear stories from all of them. Uh, It was really fun to see the picture of the headwaters of the Jordan that we had uh, because that's where most of our action today is going to take place. We're concluding our Voices series with John the Baptist, and most of John's ministry happened downriver on the Jordan River itself. And uh, John is just a great example in this Voices series. He's a great place to conclude because though John doesn't always get it right, Most of the time, John listens to the right voices, and even when he gets it wrong, he's a role model for us. So we're going to talk about the voices in John's life and think about what voices we're listening to. So let's get started in that. One of the unusual things with John the Baptist is that we know a lot about the circumstances around John's birth, more than we know about most biblical characters. In Luke chapter 1, we get this lengthy story of the announcement of John's birth. And see, the thing is, John's parents were older. And Zechariah, his father, and Elizabeth, his mother, had pretty much given up hope that they were ever going to have kids. So Zechariah, who was a priest, was in the temple one day doing his priestly duties, and an angel appeared to him as he was burning incense, and an angel said, Zechariah, I have great news. You and Elizabeth are going to have a baby, and he's going to be really special. God has a calling on his life. God's going to do great things through him. Here's the thing. Zechariah was so jaded. Zechariah had gotten so used to despair that his response to the angel now i got to tell you most english translations play this down but in greek zachariah's response to the angel is quite literally says who says who And if you know the story, you know that in response to that little bit of sarcasm, Zechariah is struck dumb. He can't speak during the course of Elizabeth's pregnancy. All the while John is growing in Elizabeth's womb, Zechariah's mute. And it's only when John is born and Zechariah writes on a slate to say his name is John that his mouth is freed up and he can again speak. Now, here's one of the things I wonder. Because, you see, John had amazing spiritual sensitivity. Even in the womb, even in that time when he's growing inside of Elizabeth, Elizabeth and Mary meet up. Mary's pregnant with Jesus. Elizabeth is pregnant with John. And even in the womb, John reacts to the presence of Jesus. Elizabeth feels him kicking because he's in the presence of Jesus. John has amazing spiritual sensitivity. And I wonder, did Zechariah and Elizabeth tell him the stories of what happened during his growth in the womb? Did they tell him? Did did Zechariah say, son, I want you to learn from my mistakes. Don't ever doubt God. When God gives you a command, be obedient to it. Because that's the attitude we see in John throughout his life. We see that kind of eagerness to be obedient to God. We see that kind of jumping at the chance to do what God is is up to and to be a part of what God is up to. So let me ask you this. Parents, 
What voices are you speaking into the lives of your children? Whatever their age, maybe, maybe your kids are grown and on their own. Are you transparent about the places where you are missing God? Are you transparent about the places where you are waiting on God? Are you transparent about the places where you are obedient to God and helping your children understand what it means to listen to the voice of God? That's so critically important. The Bible tells us that John is in the wilderness until the day when his ministry starts, when he starts this ministry of baptism that becomes so important in preparing the way for Jesus. Two things we know about John's preparation. One is he's in the wilderness, and two is that he's a Nazarite. The angel tells his father he should be a Nazarite. Now, a Nazarite was a very specific set of vows that a person would take, and they would, among other things, limit themselves. They wouldn't cut their hair, and they wouldn't drink alcohol. So we've got those two limitations in John's life, and we've also got him in the wilderness. Now, there's kind of a commonality here, because being in the wilderness, I don't know if you've ever done any backcountry tripping, but I love the Boundary Waters. Some of you know that. I, I absolutely love getting away in the Boundary Waters and canoeing way. And part of the best part of it, there's no cell towers. There's no cell towers. You can bring your cell phone, but it's just a piece of metal. And I love that. I love that nobody can reach me. John's in the wilderness, and part of what the wilderness does is it limits your distractions. Incidentally, that's the same thing that happens when John limits these things in his life by saying he's going to be a Nazarite. He limits his distractions. So let me ask this. How are you structuring time, which is really what the wilderness is all about, is structuring time away how are you structuring time and limiting distractions so that you can hear the voice of God better? This works really powerfully in John's life. We're going to see that John is paying attention. He's listening to the voice of God. One of the ways that he does that is through God's written word. He listens to the voice of the prophets. It's obvious that John knows the scriptures and knows the voices of the prophets as we read his story. He knows the stories of Elijah. We talked about Elijah a few weeks ago. And John's costume and his prophesying and all of the things that John does are set in the mold in the imitation of Elijah. And that becomes critically important for a reason that we're going to see in a second. Also, being in the wilderness connects him up to Moses, who led the Israelites through the wilderness. And so there's this whole continuity with the Old Testament and the tradition of the Israelites and how God had spoken to them in the past. And John comes right in the heels of that. But one of the most important things that John understood and that the people around him understood was a prophecy by one of the smallest of the Old Testament prophets, smallest in length. I don't know how tall Malachi was, but at the end of Malachi's prophecy, the very last verses of the Old Testament, God speaks through the prophet Malachi and he says, before the Messiah comes, I will send Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And so in Jesus' day, in John's day, all the Israelites were waiting for Elijah to come. All the Israelites were waiting for some great prophet to arise who was going to bring this renewal movement. And that's exactly what John did. 
That's exactly what John did. There was a renewal. We might describe it as a revival where people were flocking to John and saying, we want to be a part of what God is doing and we see what God is doing happening in and around you. In the midst of this, John is listening to the voice of the Spirit. Let's get into Scripture a little bit. Let's go to John chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 29. There's a lot in John 1 that we learn about John the Baptist. And just because it gets confusing, John who wrote John's gospel is not the same as John the Baptist. So John writes about John the Baptist, and that makes it confusing. One theologian I know likes to say they were very short on boys' names in the first century. So don't get confused by that. John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John is listening to the voice of the Spirit. The Spirit has given him information about the Messiah who is to come. This is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. They were expecting the Messiah, and this expectation of the the Messiah coming and baptizing with fire and with the Holy Spirit, that was right in line with what the people expected. By that, baptizing with fire and baptizing with the Holy Spirit, they meant that there's going to be judgment and purification on Israel. A lot of people in John's time were looking for that kind of judgment and purification. But John has an interesting contrast along with that. And that shows that John was paying attention to the Spirit beyond just the expectations of the culture. And that's important for us to think about. Because honestly, if your theology agrees with everything that everybody's posting on their Facebook feeds, you're probably not listening to the Holy Spirit. John is listening to God, and so his expectation runs counter to what a lot of the people around him are saying. He points to Jesus, and he says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, everybody expected the Messiah to be a great political and national leader. That's what they figured. The Messiah is going to be both spiritual, religious leader, and national political leader, and probably a military leader. But nobody else was saying the Messiah is going to be a sacrifice. And that's what John was saying. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that's sacrifice language. Interesting how the Gospels tell us the stories of Jesus coming to be baptized by John. Jesus comes to John and John tells us right here that he didn't know Jesus. But Jesus comes to be baptized, and John, with that spiritual sensitivity that we've mentioned, has this deep sense of Jesus' holiness, of the presence of God in Jesus as Jesus comes to the river with him. And John objects. He says, I shouldn't be baptizing you. 
You should be baptizing me. And Jesus doesn't contradict that, but he says, let it be so for now. Let it be so for now that we may fulfill all righteousness. Now, Jesus was baptized not because of his own sin. When people came to John to be baptized, it was a baptism of repentance for their sin. Jesus had no sin. He didn't come to repent of his own sin, but he comes to fulfill all righteousness. First of all, to identify with those who are sinners. Jesus, throughout his ministry, was known as the friend of sinners. He had a bad reputation with the Jewish leaders because he was eating with tax collectors and sinners. But even more, Jesus is identifying with the movement that John has started. What God is doing through John, Jesus says, this is the right thing, this kind of renewal, this kind of revival, and I'm going to be a part of it. Because what you're doing here, John, what God is doing through you is going to launch my ministry. And that's how John saw himself. So in spite of his misgivings, John obeys. Just like Pastor Steve talked about last week with Philip, that prompt obedience is so key. If God nudges you to do something, just do it. Just do it. Especially the little things. Just jump out and do them, and God will train you through that obedience to be obedient in the long run. John's biggest expectation about himself is that he would be... What he said from Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And he saw his whole ministry wrapped up in preparing the way for Jesus. He had these dual expectations, like we said, that that the Messiah was going to come and judge Israel and purify Israel, but then also that the Messiah was going to be this Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. Now, things didn't always stay so good for John. His ministry took a hard turn when he criticized King Herod, and he got put in prison for his criticism. One of the things that happens when you're in prison is you have lots of time to think, and John gets lots of time to think, and he wonders, did I get it wrong? He starts to listen to the voice of doubt. He starts to second-guess himself. And so in Matthew chapter 11, we get this Story, Matthew chapter 11, starting with verse 2. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we wait for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What happens when you listen to the voice of doubt? What happens to you when you start to second-guess yourself? John fears he's been mistaken because Jesus doesn't seem to be doing the things that John expects. He's not coming up as a military political leader, and he's not giving himself as a sacrifice for sin. He's doing lots of miraculous stuff. But the way John responds to his doubt is exactly the right way. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't call a bunch of his friends together and say, what do you think? He doesn't go online and consult the latest polls. 
He sends messengers to Jesus. When you get into that place of doubt, bring it to Jesus. When you get into that place of second-guessing yourself, wondering if maybe you've missed God, bring it to Jesus. Don't just sit around and wonder. John goes back to Jesus with his doubts, and Jesus responds. Jesus says, John, I'm doing something bigger than you understood. You had the right expectations, but it's a bigger thing than you understood. So I am moving a greater movement than you realized. When John brings his doubts to Jesus, he doesn't get the answer he wants, but he gets the truth. One of the most intriguing ways to think about John the Baptist, and Jesus goes into this a little bit following those verses. We're not going to read that section for the sake of time, but I'd encourage you to dig into some of this. John the Baptist really functions as the last of the Old Testament prophets. If you look at the arc of Old Testament prophecy throughout the Bible, John the Baptist kind of brings that movement to a close, pointing toward Jesus. And because John the Baptist sits at the end of this great tradition of Old Testament prophecy, he kind of has an expectation that the Messiah is going to fulfill his tradition in the way that he expects. Succession is a hard thing. Some of you are at a stage of life where you have had a position of influence, you've had a station of responsibility, and now you're at a place where you're having to consider what does it mean to hand that off? Maybe in the next 20 years, maybe in the next two years. What does it mean to hand off some of those responsibilities? And it scares you to death. Because frankly, you can't see anybody coming up who can take over for you. You can't see anybody honoring what you've given your life to build. As a child growing up, I saw this again and again and again with family farms around the small farming community where I grew up. Family farms that had to be passed on from father to son, and sometimes those fathers just couldn't stand to let go. They'd give their sons the authority to do the scut work, but the decision-making stayed with them. It's tempting to hang on to control. Succession planning is hard. And that's true in farming. It's true in business. It's true in families. It's true in the church. What does it mean to give authority to the next generation? What does it mean to bless them rather than to resentfully pass off leadership? Maybe you doubt. How can you approach that task with grace? There's a lot to be said about that, but we're going to move on. I'll let you ponder that. We're going to go back to John chapter 3. And this is really the last scripture and the last thought I want to leave you with. If you get nothing else about John the Baptist today, there's a golden nugget coming for you to take home at the end of this scripture. Because you see, when John was still doing his ministry, there was a brief period of time when John's ministry and Jesus' ministry overlapped. And that's what we get here, is that Jesus and his disciples are staying in an area near John. And John is still baptizing and people are still coming to him. But now people are also going to Jesus and Jesus' disciples are baptizing people who come. And there gets to be an argument and some of John's disciples come to him and ask him, what are we going to do about this? Jesus is taking our market share. 
Here's John's response. John chapter 3, verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Can you say that this morning? Can you set ego aside and say, whatever else is true in my life, Jesus must increase and I must decrease? You see, that philosophy, more of Jesus, less of me, that philosophy fills John the Baptist's life from start to finish, from the womb to the time when he's beheaded in prison by Herod. Every moment of his life, John the Baptist is seeking more of Jesus, less of him. Can we say that this morning? Can we say that we will be thrilled, that our joy will be full if there's more of Jesus and less of the open door, more of Jesus and less of my individual reputation? If more people come to know Jesus and fewer people recognize me, will I be okay with that? That's a hard thing. That's a hard thing. But you know what? John the Baptist takes us right there. He leads us there. He must increase, but I must decrease. More of Jesus, less of me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, that's a hard word for us sometimes, that we need to lose our lives for your sake. That we need to set ego aside. And that you become the one that we point to. You become the one that we focus on. You become the one who's drawing people's attention. But you also promise, Lord, that if you're lifted up, if we lift you up, that you will draw people to yourself. And so we pray in our worship, in our study, in our speaking, in our conversation, in our prayer, that you would be lifted up. And that as you're lifted up, Jesus, as you're glorified, as we make much of you, that you would draw people to yourself change lives, transform reality the the way that only you can do. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.